taste and see that the Lord is good. Oh, blessed is He, He who hides in Him. Amen. Amen. Good morning, guys. Would you please be seated and we'll continue to worship.
see, we don't need a sound system. You guys are, are the choir. You guys are the heart of this worship. And as we continue to worship, as we continue to seek him, let's let our hearts cry out. Let's let our hearts come to that place that only you can go. I will go there. <laughs> I want you guys to follow, but only you can find your place before the throne of God. Only you can come and present yourself before him alone. We can't do it for you. And just know, <laughs> there's a lot of crazy in this world, right? He is the safe place. It may not seem like it sometimes, but he is the one that holds on, the rock. So let's invite him now. You're our living 
sing one more song.
choir one more time. Here we go. I will give. I'll give you all my worship. I'll give you all my praise. You alone, I long to worship. You alone are worthy of my praise. Amen. Welcome to Calvary. Good morning, guys. Would you turn, greet one another? Children can be dismissed to the left, to the right side of the stage. Wow. Good morning, everyone. I imagine uh, most of you saw that uh, over the week, the community center where we've met for 12 years burned down, um, certainly so. Um, you know, thank the Lord, obviously, that we had moved on from there. But there is a church that continues to gather there. So I imagine that this was a difficult week for that church. So you could be praying for them. They're, I believe they're referred to as Victorious Church. Uh, I want to thank, uh, I don't know if he's in the room with us, Patrick Ferry, are you here? Patrick is a fireman in the town, and uh, while we were sleeping uh, the other evening, he was out fighting that fire, so we're grateful for him and his service, aren't we? We appreciate that very much. Uh, we are today uh, in the book of Zephaniah. Zephaniah. So start the process of finding it uh, in your Bibles. It's a little book, a couple of pages probably in most of our Bibles. And, and if you're just sort of kind of flipping through, more than likely you'll go past it or you'll get to Zechariah and think that you've hit Zephaniah and that Greg just mispronounced it or something. Um, but Zephaniah chapter 1 uh, is where we're going to be today. We're continuing our look. We've be, we began doing this uh, Maybe almost two months ago, we, we went back into the Old Testament. We went back into the minor prophets. That's been our trend for a little bit now is uh, to spend some time in the new, then go back to the old and pick up where we left off. And so we've been making our way through the books of the minor prophets. Uh, the book of Zephaniah is the ninth of the 12 books of the minor prophets. Uh, and 
Uh, it's where we're going to be camping for the next two to, th to three weeks together. Uh, anyone read the book of Zephaniah? Okay, look at, wow, look at that. Um, good. Uh, congratulations. Um, <laughs> the book of Zephaniah has been referred to by people that take it upon themselves to be critics of the Bible. That doesn't seem to be a, a job I would want to take on, but there are people that find great enjoyment uh, in critiquing the Bible. Critics of the Bible have referred to the book of Zephaniah as dull and derivative, and that's what I think of them. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. Uh, they call it dull and derivative. They refer to it as dull uh, because Zephaniah doesn't use a lot of poetic language in his writing. Some of the prophets do, and it's, they're almost like psalmist. Um, Zephaniah is not. Zephaniah pretty much uh, gets right to the point. He's very matter-of-fact. He doesn't delay. He jumps right in. You'll see verse 2. Uh, he is sort of the Joe Friday of the Old Testament prophets. Some of you remember Joe Friday, just the facts, ma'am? Some of you have no idea. Google it. You'll figure it out. Um, but he is kind of the Joe Friday of the uh, Old Testament prophets, uh, and that's why people refer to him as a dull writer. The second knock against this fella is that he is derivative, uh, which, if you don't know what that means, as I didn't, I've heard it, but I didn't know what it meant. Derivative means to be too dependent upon the works of others. It means to be unimaginative or imitative. And the accusation against Zephaniah is that his work is both unoriginal and it is unnecessary because he pretty much says what all of the other minor prophets have said in one place or another. Why bother reading this guy? We can just read those guys here. And so they call him derivative. Considering the fact, however, that we believe that though there are many human authors of the 66 books of our Bible, as many as 41 different authors, we believe that there is ultimately only one author of the Word of God, which is the Holy Spirit. And so no wonder there is some overlap in the writing. Additionally, if you ask me, what better source to derive the material of your source than the Word of God? And so if quoting or referencing the Word of God causes a person to be derivative, then may I say, may we all be a bit more derivative in our speakings and in our writings. So he's dull, he's derivative, according to some. When we get done, I'll ask you, do you think he was dull or derivative? And you can answer the question for yourself. Just about a month ago, we, we finished studying, we started and finished studying the book of Nahum. You remember that one? The book of Nahum, you may recall, it spoke of the coming judgment on the capital city of the Assyrian Empire. The capital city of the Assyrian Empire was the city of Nineveh. And because it spoke of it as something that was yet future, we were able to sort of put a timeline on the book of Nahum. We know when the Battle of Nineveh occurred. We know when the Assyrian capital was destroyed. That was 612 BC. And so then we know that Nahum's book had to come sometime before that. Zephaniah, derivative as he is, is referred to as being, also speaks of the coming judgment upon the city of Nineveh, which means we could also say that we know that his book was written sometime prior to 612 BC. In both of those instances, we know that 612 BC is before the beginning 
of the Babylonian captivity. You remember the nation of Israel, or the Jewish people as a whole, were taken into two different uh, periods of captivity. The first was called the Assyrian captivity. That happened in the 700s. The second was by a different nation, the Babylonians. That happened in the very early, or the very late 600s and the very early 500s BC. And so, since we know that this book occurred before the Battle of Nineveh, before 612 BC, then we know that it is, again, one of those books that we call a pre-exilic book, pre-exile, that it occurred before the Babylonian captivity. And we're able to narrow it down to somewhere around the time 625 BC to 615 BC is where this book of Zephaniah falls. That's important for us to know. It's not just some fact that we're like, oh, wow, I can put it on a timeline. It's important for us to know because we know what life was like in Israel, in Judah in particular, the southern kingdom, at that time period, which we'll come back to on multiple occasions in our study of the book. If you thumb through the book real quickly, what you will notice is there are three chapters to this book. So there's less than 60 verses, closer to 50 verses in the entire book. Additionally, what we'll discover as we make our way through the book of Zephaniah is there are three sections to this book. They don't necessarily follow the chapter breakdowns, but there are three sections in this book. The first section, which begins in chapter 1 and it runs to the first couple of verses of chapter 2, is going to pronounce a coming judgment upon the nation of Judah, the southern kingdom of the Jewish people. And so the, the first section pronounces a coming judgment from the hand of the Lord. Chapter 2, verse 4, through chapter 3, verse 8, specific cities and nations are going to be named that will be judged, with a brief description as to why. We'll spend some time with that. And then chapter 3, verse 8, through the end of the book, it, con it conveys to us a message of hope that is shared for the faithful remnant that will be on the scene when this judgment will occur, a message of hope for those individuals. A central theme that runs, there is a central theme that runs through the entire book. You remember the book of Nahum, the central theme was that coming judgment on Nineveh. They kept coming back to that. Well, the central theme of the book of Zephaniah is the phrase and the topic, the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord. And we'll see that on multiple occasions, occasions in our study. The day of the Lord, that phrase or something like it where it'll say, and on that day, and it's referring to the day of the Lord, that phrase or terms like it appear 325 different times in our Bibles. That's a lot of times where it's spoken of. In this small book alone, it appears on 11 different occasions. Small book, 50-some verses, and it appears 11 different times that it is spoken of. The day of the Lord, important for us to understand as, as followers of God and also as Bible students, it's, it refers to this. It's God's special intervention in the affairs of men. Now, we're not deists. We don't believe that God wound up the clock and let it go, and now it operates on his own. We do believe that God is involved in the affairs of men. But there are from time to time where God, in a special way, intervenes into the affairs of men. And the day of the Lord is God's special intervention into the affairs of men. No wonder it so often appears in the prophetic books of our Bibles, both the minor and the major prophets. Another definition given for the day of the Lord is, it is a span of time during which God personally 
intervenes in history, whether that be directly or indirectly, to accomplish some specific aspect of his plan. And oftentimes when we read of the day of the Lord, we're referring to the period of the end times, that seven-year period of time that you hear about that is so prevalent, uh, discussed in the book of Revelation. Oftentimes the day of the Lord is referring to that end time period. Sometimes the phrase the day of the Lord as it's unpacked in the scriptures is referring to the, that period of time that comes after the seven-year period of God's judgment, or at the very least, it includes a period of time that comes after the seven-year period of God's judgment, and it's as many as a thousand years. And we call that thousand years, some of you know, we call that the millennium, a thousand. And so sometimes reference to the day of the Lord is referring to the special intervention of God in the affairs of men when the Lord himself is ruling and reigning over the world, the millennium. And then there are other instances where the phrase the day of the Lord is applied as it is here uh, in one aspect to the Lord's near coming intervention. intervention. Not the end of the world intervention, but his near coming intervention where he's going to be bringing a judgment on the people, the generation that is existing. And Zephaniah is going to speak of that. Now, a confusing thing with the day of the Lord sometimes and with the prophets is many times a text is speaking uh, of both a near fulfillment as well as a far fulfillment. It's speaking of something that's going to come almost certainly in that prophet's day or in the very next generation, and then it just sort of jumps to the end of time as well. And that can become confusing at times. But we'll see often there is a near fulfillment and a greater far fulfillment of these prophecies. We'll draw your attention to that as we're making our way through the book. Now, the book of Zephaniah begins this way, verse 1. It says, Now the word of the Lord that came to Zephaniah, the son of Cushi, the son of Gedaliah, the son of Amariah, the son of Hezekiah, in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, the king of Judah. Now, we learn something in that verse that is unique to the prophet Zephaniah. Typically, in the minor prophets, when they give their genealogy, they will either give their, who their direct descendants of, or they might give a reference to a time in which they live. Uh, Zephaniah does both. And so we learn that he is a descendant of, ultimately, of this fellow by the name of Hezekiah. And we also learn that he lived during the days of this man, Josiah. And so Zephaniah was the son of Hezekiah. Well, actually, he was the son of the son of the son of Hezekiah. Now, that Hezekiah was the former king of Israel. So Zephaniah's great-great-grandfather was one of the greatest kings in the nation of Israel, King Hezekiah. You can read about King Hezekiah uh, in a number of chapters of our Bibles. 1 Kings chapter 16 through 20 speaks of him and his administration. 1 Chronicles chapter 28 through 32 speaks of him and his administration. Additionally, the book of Isaiah uh, records some interactions between uh, the prophet Isaiah, and the king, King Hezekiah. So there's a lot in our Bibles about this man, Hezekiah. He was a good king. Uh, he, he would be in the list of the greatest of the kings of Israel, um, a godly man 
who instituted godly reforms into the nation. That was Zephaniah's great-great-grandfather. And so this tells us then that Hezekiah, excuse me, that Zephaniah is a member of the royal family. Um, probably not the, the he, well, he wasn't the king, but he is a cousin of the king. Now the king is this man, you see it here at the end of verse 1, his name is Josiah. And so Josiah is a great-great-grandson, or maybe one more great in there, uh, of Hezekiah as well, and a cousin of this prophet Zephaniah. So just like Zephaniah, he's a descendant of King Hezekiah. Josiah was also a godly king, just like his great-great-grandfather Hezekiah was. Josiah, we learn in our study of the Bible, instituted key reforms in the nation in an attempt to put sin out of the nation. Josiah became king when he was eight years old, so no doubt he had a little bit of help as he was running things. But when he turned 16 years old, now he's old enough uh, to sort of administer some things, he had the temple cleaned out because the chambers on the sides of the temple, the rooms, additional rooms that were added to the temple there, they had become like like sheds, just throw all your junk in there kind of thing, and other stuff was going on there as well. And he had all of them cleaned out, and they found a copy of the scriptures. And the way that it's revealed, it's like, like, oh my gosh, that's a Bible. I haven't seen a Bible in forever. And they began to read it, and they began to apply it, and God brought change, and that's what God does. You read God's word, you apply God's word, your life is going to be different. And the nation as a whole began to understand that and, and experience that. And so Josiah instituted these reforms that came to the nation because unfortunately between Hezekiah and Josiah, there was King Manasseh who ruled for 50 some years and a guy named King Ammon who ruled for a much shorter time than that. And those two kings, if Hezekiah was one of the greatest of kings, those two kings were two of the worst and two of the most wicked of kings in the nation. And so the nation just plummeted into immorality. And then Josiah rises up. And in the midst of all of this, or living in all of this, is this fellow Zephaniah. And God's going to raise Zephaniah up to speak to the sin of the nation of Judah. To give you a sense just of the wickedness of the nation in his day, would you flip over to 2 Kings chapter 21. If you don't have a Bible, there's some in some of the seats nearby. We'll, we'll put it up on the screen, I suspect, although it is a long passage. I'm not sure if we will. But in 2 Kings chapter 21, remember I told you two kings, Manasseh and Ammon. This is what we read of them. It says, now Manasseh was 12 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Hephzibah. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to the despicable practices of the nations whom the Lord had driven out from before the people of Israel. He rebuilt the high places that Hezekiah, his father, had destroyed. The high places is where they would go and worship these other gods. And he erected altars for Baal, and he made an Asherah. An Asherah pole is where they participated in their worship of that god as Ahab, king of Israel, had done, and they worshipped all the hosts of heaven, and they served them. And he built altars in the, in the house of the Lord, 
on which the Lord had said, in Jerusalem will I put my name. He built altars for all the hosts of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. And he burned his son as an offering, and he used fortune-telling and omens and dealt with mediums and with necromancers. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking the Lord to anger. And he carved the image of Asherah that he had made, he sat in the house of which the Lord said to David and Solomon, in this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes, will I put my name forever. Instead, he put the names of his gods. Verse 9, but they did not listen, and Manasseh led them astray to do more evil than the nations had done whom the Lord people of Israel. Go down to verse 16. Moreover, Manasseh shed very much innocent blood till he had filled Jerusalem from one end to another. Then that he made Judah to sin, so that they did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. That's Manasseh. Skip down to verse 9. He worshipped them. He abandoned the Lord, the God of his fathers, and he did not walk in the way of the Lord. All right, so you have a sense of the two kings that came before Manasseh and the impact that their reign had on the nation. And it's into that darkness that the Lord raises up Zephaniah to speak. And we know or at least it's a very safe conclusion that it's the words of Zephaniah that to some degree at least contributed to the revival that came on the nation. God used Zephaniah to bring reform and change to the nation, even as he can use you and I. Zephaniah, he follows that typical pattern of the Old Testament prophets. And that pattern is to begin with the pronouncement of coming judgment, that's followed by an explanation for the reason for that judgment, a prophecy then of the judgment uh, before this whole thing is wrapped up, and then a call of repentance. So there's sort of this pattern that they follow. Judgment is coming. Here's the reason it's coming. Here's how it's going to come. Repent. Who knows what the Lord might do? Repent. You remember the book of Jonah when he went to the city of Nineveh, and that's basic. He, he left out the part about repent, because they didn't want him to repent. But the people figured it out for themselves, and they did. And mercy was extended to them. So let's really dig in. Verse 2, he says, I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth. Remember he was dull? He just sort of jumps in. He's Joe Friday. No, like... You're all very nice people, but God's going to judge you. Like nothing like he just, boom, let's give it to you. Uh, I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I'll sweep away man and beast. I'll sweep away the birds of the heaven and the fish of the sea and the rubble with the wicked. I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and I will cut off from this place the remnant of Baal and the name of the idolatrous priest along with the priest, those who bow down on the roofs to the host of the heavens, those who bow down and swear to the Lord and yet also swear by Milcom, those who have turned back from following the Lord, who do not seek the Lord or inquire of him. He, again, he jumps right in and he delivers this message of a harsh and complete judgment that is about to come. Notice the phrase, that will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth. Now, as you move down to verse 3, verse 4 there, what we see that he has in mind specifically is the city of Jerusalem 
of the nation or the land of Judah. And specifically, he has in mind the Babylonians that are going to be coming in in just a matter of decades, even less than decades. But at the same time, as you look at the extreme language that is used, utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth, every man and beast and bird and so on. As we read that as well, we can't help but realize that there is a subsequent greater understanding and final judgment that will one day come that is being spoken of as well. And so here we have sort of the first of those examples where there's a near fulfillment and a far fulfillment. And here we are 2,000 years later, 2,600 years later, and we remind ourselves that God is still the righteous judge. And he will no more tolerate sin in our day as he did in that day. And so we read these words, not from the historical perspective, and be like, oh, that's very interesting to hear what happened there. But we read them with hearts that we allow to be cut. Because God is saying the same thing to our day as well. And to us and to our, the world in which we live. He begins with an explanation for the judgment. Look at verse 4. He says, I will stretch out my hand against Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Why? Well, he's going to give us four different reasons. The first begins in verse 5. It's the nation's idolatry. He says, I will cut off from this place the remnant of Baal and the name of the idolatrous priest along with the Jewish priest. Baal was one of the gods of that part of the world in that particular day. His name comes up oftentimes in the Bible. And sadly, what we see here, I read it from the Second Kings passage, the nation of Israel adopted the idolatrous practices of the nations that were around them and the nations that had been driven out of the land. For further reading, you might want to look yourself at 2 Kings chapter 23. And you, from that chapter, you begin to get an idea of the extent of the idol worship that was present throughout the land, throughout the nation of Judah and Israel. First reason this judgment is coming upon the nation of Judah is because of the idolatry that they embraced. The second one is also found, or it's found in verse 5, notice, uh, it speaks of a judgment that is coming against those who bow down on the roofs to the host of the heavens. The host of the heavens refers to the stars. This refers to those who charted the stars from their rooftops and then charted their lives according to the study of those stars. What do we call that today? We call that astrology. And that was popular in the lands around Israel and had made its way into the nation of Israel. And so every day the people would get up and they'd open up their newspaper to read their horoscope so they could determine the direction of their day based on what the stars were telling them. The Lord wasn't pleased. It was rampant in the 7th century. And it even is in the 21st century. You know, it amazes me. Sometimes I'll watch a show and I'll see an actor or an actress, and I'll say, who is that lady? Like, where do I know that lady from? She was in something. And my wife is like, who cares? And I'm like, I do, you know. And so I'll go on, and there's some website, I think it's IMDB or something, and it tells you everything they've ever been in. And it'll tell you, you know, this lady, this is her, her mom, this is their dad, this is her husband or whatever. Uh, and then it'll always include their sign. I'm like, who cares? I don't even care about their sign. But it always will include whether they're a Leo or whatever else they are there. 
And many people are in bondage in our day to astrology. I remember in, when I was 17, I was at Delhi Delight. Some of you old people will know Delhi Delight. And I, oh, wow, you loved it. Uh, and sitting there, right there at the counter, they, they just had, you know, things you can buy, like you don't really want it, but it's there at the counter, and I got my money out, I'll buy it. And it was a little uh, rolled up scroll, small little scroll of the monthly horoscope. So I picked one up. I, was, I wasn't a believer. I picked one up, and I would follow it each day, 30 different, 31 different horoscopes for the day. And I remember looking at it, and basically that horoscope will tell me if my day is going to go well or not, and whether I should engage in this particular thing or not. If I want to be successful, don't start it today, start it tomorrow when it says you're going to have a good day, not today when it says you're going to have a bad day. And very slowly, I was becoming in bondage to this thing. If you find yourself doing that sort of thing, you need to hear what the Lord says about it. He speaks against it, and he says he's going to bring judgment against it. Oh, it's innocent, Greg. It's innocent. Is it? Or is it pulling you in to a place that the Lord would not desire for you to be? Take notice of how the Lord feels about the practice. Let's go on to verse, continuing in verse 5. He speaks of those who bow down and swear to the Lord, and yet swear by Milcom. Now, some of your versions might say Molech there. We're talking about the same one, two different names for the god of the Phoenician people. The Phoenician people were a people that uh, had sort of migrated into the land, the promised land area, and with that, they brought their influences. One of their influences was the worship of their god, more commonly known to many of us as the god Molech. The god Molech was the god of financial prosperity amongst the Phoenician people. So they had many particular gods, and, but if they specifically wanted to have a financially prosperous month or whatever, they would pray a prayer to the god Molech. The worship of the god Molech included, there would be a statue that would be erected uh, to him, and it included various sexual rituals around that statue. And it included the offering of uh, the couple's firstborn in sacrifice to that god. And so you remember we were reading about Manasseh, and it said something like he even offered up his firstborn son, probably to the god Molech. What they would do is it would be a metal god. It would probably be about 10 feet tall. His arms would be extended out like this. They would light a fire uh, at the foot of this metal uh, statue, and then they would lay the baby in the arms of that uh, statue as it burned. And then as the baby would scream from the pain of the fire, the people would dance around and chant louder and louder and louder to drown out the sounds of the crying baby. This is the nation of Israel. These are people that had been revealed the will of God, and somehow they ended up in this particular place. So troubling. The Lord makes it very clear how he spears, uh, feels about it. But notice this also. That in and of itself is troubling, isn't it? But notice this also. It says in that verse 5, it says, They bow down and swear to the Lord and to the god Molech. So it's one thing to be totally engaged in this particular thing. It's another thing to leave church and then stop by at the temple to Molech and do it as well. This is a people they are. This is what the Bible refers to as 
spiritual adultery. They have a husband, if you will, God, but they have another lover on the side, and they are committing spiritual adultery. Is it possible to love the Lord in that way? It's not. People can deceive themselves into thinking it is, but the reality is it's not. And in God's opinion, such spiritual adultery, it was, and it continues to be to our day, as offensive as the outright sin of idolatry. The utter apostate, the one that says, yeah, oh, I'm done with that religion. The utter apostate is no worse in God's mind here than the one who plays around with his divine affections. The one who worships the Lord this day and worships a false god another day. And so Zephaniah then, he is addressing these groups of people. He addresses the utter apostate. I'm done with Judaism. He addresses that person. He addresses the partial apostate. I know I'm still a Jew. I just really enjoy this other place as well. He addresses that person as well. The last group that he's going to address are those that are just simply indifferent to God, indifferent to the Lord. He refers to them, as you can see in verse 6. He says, those who have turned back from following the Lord, nor do they seek him, nor do they inquire of him. They were just sort of indifferent toward him. And in the Lord's mind, that indifference was the same as if they were completely rejecting them. And I think this describes the vast majority of Americans uh, in our day. Not so much that they rejected the Christian faith or something like that. They're just not interested in it. They're indifferent to it. Maybe when Christmas time comes around, they'll, they'll think a little more toward those particular things. Oh, great, you're going to go to church this year? Well, we have a big dinner. You know, the family comes together. Well, isn't Christmas all about? Forget it. I'm sorry. <laughs> but they're indifferent. They're not against it, just indifferent. Give no mind to God and his daily interactions in their lives. I wonder, maybe to some degree, and maybe we're all Christians here. I hope we are. I suspect some of us are not yet followers of Jesus Christ, and we're trying to figure things out, and I'm so glad you came here, and I hope we could be a part of that process. But I imagine the vast majority of us here would consider ourselves to be Christians. I think these things, signs of these things, can enter into our lives as well. And so I wonder if any of the groups that I just looked at with you describe where you are right now in your relationship. Again, if you're here on a Sunday morning, you probably haven't totally and completely rejected God, but it's possible. Your wife wanted you to come, your husband wanted you to come, your parents wanted you to come, and you're here just so you don't get yelled at this afternoon, all right? But if you have completely and totally rejected the Lord, allow the word that we're about to look at in a few moments, allow it to speak to you, what the Lord thinks of that, how the Lord will respond to that. Or maybe you are the one that more closely aligns with kind of that astrologer. Maybe you don't get, you're not into astrology, but you find yourself looking for answers, whether that be literally, figuratively, you find yourself looking for answers in the created things, the stars like the astrologers do, as opposed to the creator. And you're going all different other places to get your answers, find your purpose, find your meaning, find your joy as opposed to going to the Lord himself. 
Or maybe you're trying to live a dual life, serving God and yet serving your flesh as well. The reason why, let's all be honest, the reason why the worship of Molech was so popular, especially among the men, is because it was just sexual sin is what it was. And many of the babies that were offered were those that came about as a result of the worship. And so really, it's just about pleasure. And so many of us here, we might be, yes, I'm a follower of God, and yet when we leave this room, or maybe tomorrow, maybe Tuesday, we engage in sexual sin or some way of pleasuring ourselves that we know that the Lord wouldn't be supportive of. Or finally, maybe you've been discovering that you're just a little bit indifferent toward the things of God. You don't really want to pay much attention to it. Yeah, you'll, you'll go to church or whatever. You get up, you're tired of having a quiet time. I don't really even care what he has to say to me in the Bible. I've read it so many times, it doesn't make an impact on me. You sit here, you're looking at the clock. When's this thing done? He better be done in time for the game. Uh, that's all I have to say, you know, whatever. And you're just indifferent to what the Lord might want to say to you this morning. Like, I think that's the one that could hit most of, uh, most of us in this room. It's just growing sort of cold to the things of God. Notice this. God knows where each one of these folks are that he is addressing. And he intends to directly intervene into their lives. That's what uh, Zephaniah is predicting. He says he will directly intervene into their lives. And so we should take heed. Let's go on. Verse 7, he says, Be silent before the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is near. The Lord has prepared a sacrifice. He's consecrated his guests. And on the day of the Lord's sacrifice, I will punish the officials and the king's sons, and all who array themselves in foreign attire. On that day I will punish everyone who leaps over the threshold, and those who fill their master's house with violence and fraud. Now he's going to go on and list a whole number of things that the people are involved in. Every one of those things that the people are involved in, we'll, we'll break them down, but every one of the things that people are involved with goes back to one of those four other conditions of the heart. It's because they're involved in apostasy. It's because they're trying to live a dual life. It's because they, they're worshiping and serving the created thing as opposed to the creator. Or it's because they're indifferent to the things of God. And the result is it begins to manifest itself in their lives. And so when we look at people's lives, when we look at our own lives, and we see there's an area of our lives that we, we got to get right. I got this anger problem. I scream at people all the time. I yell at people. I steal things. I, you know, I, I, I'm some substance that I've given myself over to. And we look at that outward the outward always goes back to an inward. There's a reason for it. There's a cause for it. And so that's what really needs to be changed. And we can implement little programs and plans to keep us from getting involved in those things. But you cut this thing off, you'll, it's got to come out somewhere. And it'll come out over in that particular area. You've got to change the inward. All right, and so all of these outward things that are going on, the first one is they, that the royalty, the king's sons, the officials, they arrayed themselves in foreign attire. And we don't know exactly you know, this point and why it's necessarily wrong, but some have suggested that the foreign attire is referring to the foreign attire of the false priest, the foreign attire of those that were worshiping and serving other gods. Others have simply suggested, and both of them probably apply, but others have simply suggested that the Jews were ashamed of being Jews. 
They didn't want to be distinct. They didn't want to be separate from the rest of the world. And they began to wear into foreign attire so that they could look like everybody else. People struggle with those sorts of things. They did. They were rejecting their national identity. He says there in verse 9, he says, I will punish everyone who leaps over the threshold. Again, commentators aren't settled on what exactly might be, uh, might be being communicated here. Some have suggested, you remember uh, in 1 Samuel chapter 5, when the Philistines took the Ark of the Covenant of the Jewish people and they put it in their God, the, the temple to their god Dagon. Does anyone remember this? 1 Samuel chapter 5. And then they came the next day and Dagon had fallen down before it. And they're like, oh no, poor Dagon. And they set him back up. And then they come back the next day and his arms and his legs were cut off and he had fallen down before it. And they're like, this is freaky. It says in that, it's first adopted that custom, adopted that superstition. They would step over the threshold. Uh, maybe that's what it's referring to. And that, that fits the context, worshiping other gods, adopting their practices. Others have suggested it's a totally different direction, and it also fits the context of the very next phrase, which we'll get to in a moment, and that this idea of stepping over the threshold or rushing over the threshold refers to sort of breaking into people's homes and stealing their stuff, and that also was present uh, in there. So both of those ideas speak. He talks about punishing everyone who leaps over the threshold. The next one that we have here is talking about filling their master's house with violence and fraud. And this is the idea that the working class would fulfill the direction of the ruling class and rip people off, whether that be by deceiving them with fraud or deceiving them with violence. And the nation had become a mess as a result of the no one treating one another well or with respect or properly, but the strong taking advantage of the weak, not what the Lord desired for his people. Zephaniah in verse 10, he's going to begin to discuss the merchant class of Judah. Look at verse 10, he says, on that day, there's that phrase again, on that day, declares the Lord, a cry will be heard from the fish gate. I believe the fish gate the name was later changed to the Damascus gate. Any of you that have been to Israel, you know where the Damascus gate is in Jerusalem. Uh, if you don't know the name of the gate, it's where all of the, the merchants set up their shop and you could hardly get into it uh, there because they're selling all their stuff there. Uh, so he says, a cry will be heard from the fish gate, a wail from the second quarter, a loud crash from the hills. Wail, O inhabitants of the mortar. Some of your versions might have the word maktesh. I'll talk about it. For all the traders are no more. All who weigh out silver are cut off. Now, the mortar, or some versions say the maktesh, that's the primary place of business, that was the primary place of business within the city of Jerusalem. It was located on the northern eastern side of the city. It's where the wealthy lived. It's where the royalty lived. And it makes sense, therefore, that so much of the commerce was taking place there. And though it's not explicitly stated, the charge against these merchants is that they had become more concerned about making money, the phrase is weighing out their silver, than seeking and following after the Lord. And since money became their God, soon the means by which they acquired that money no longer mattered to them. And the result is, as you can imagine, corruption and injustice and violence and fraud 
against the weaker of society. And as with the other things, the Lord saw it, he didn't like it, and he said he was going to deal with it. Now there's one last group here. This starts in verse 12. He says, at that time I will search Jerusalem with lamps. I'll punish the men who are complacent. Those who say in their hearts, the Lord will not do good, nor will he do ill. Their goods shall be plundered, their houses laid waste. Though they build houses, they will not inhabit them. Though they plant vineyards, they will not drink wine from them. Zephaniah refers to them, one version refers to it as the complacent of heart. Now, the complacent of heart, not necessarily the complacent of action. And what that tells me is that these people might not have appeared to be complacent. And yet the Lord who sees deep, he knew that they were. He, look what he says there at the end of verse 12. He says, he describes them as those that say that the Lord will not do good, nor will he do ill. They're just complacent. The Lord's not involved. I don't even care what the Lord has to say. He's not involved in our affairs. Now the King James Version, instead of the word complacent, it uses the phrase settled on their lees. Those of you that are um, reading that particular version. Settling on their lees, it refers to the process of winemaking that was particularly used in Zephaniah's day. I have no idea if they still do this. But they did, this is how they would make wine in that day. And the process was a winemaker would allow the wine to sit for a bit, sort of the, the grunge, the yuck, it would sort of sink to the bottom, then they would pour out the wine carefully into another container, just making sure they get as much liquid as they can, and they keep the lees, the junk. I, I like, in my mind, I was liking it to pulp in like orange juice. I hate that. Um, and stuff. And they would keep that there. They'd get rid of it. And then they'd let the wine sit again. And then junk would form. It would sink. They'd pour it out again into the other one. And then they would repeat that process. And many times they would repeat it as many as seven times. And the whole purpose of it was, it was an effort to purify the wine from the sediment so that the wine would, they would have the best drinking experience. Who wants to chew their wine? I don't know anyone that does. In Zephaniah's opinion, the indifferent weren't without guilt. These aren't guys bad-mouthing anyone. They're not campaigning against Judaism. They just don't care about it. And in, Zephani in Zephaniah's opinion, the indifferent were not without, gout, uh, without guilt. Because surrounded as they were in their community by corruption and by sin. Corruption and sin that was so great that the special intervention of God was necessary. Surrounded by that, they, I don't care. My family's all right. I'm doing okay. Who cares about what's going on around me? Well, the Lord did. And rather than worrying about the spiritual condition of the nation, they focused on their heart's affections, on their homes, and on their vineyards. Notice it says, you're going to build your houses but not live in them. You're going to plant your vineyards but not uh, enjoy the, the fruit of those vineyards. Perhaps these different types of people, I described some earlier, perhaps these different types of people of them, I think this group here is the one we run the risk of most becoming. Because we live in a relatively comfortable society, don't we? We have TV, we have internet, we have entertainment, we have comfortable homes, many of us. We have air conditioning when it's too hot and heat when it's too cold. 
if you know the clothing we have isn't doing what it needs to, we have ways to go get additional clothing. And it's so easy for us, I think, to settle in, make sure that we're doing okay, make sure our family is doing okay, and then completely fail to give any thought to those that are dying around us. That was the problem of many of the people of Israel. And many of those people that are going to die around us, we know, will enter into a Christless eternity. Do you care? Do I care about that? As Zephaniah said, we've become settled on our lees, a lot of us. And my prayer for each of us, and for myself certainly, is that God would disrupt things within me. And I wouldn't be able to get complacent and content. And as long as me and my kids and you know, my family and some friends that I have, as long as we're good, who cares about the rest? I don't want to think that way. And I don't think you do either. And you remember that whole process of purifying the wine? They took and they had to pour it out. I think God does that in our lives to keep us from becoming settled on the lees. Because there's some pulp, there's some grunge that forms in our lives when we get a little complacent, isn't there? And God, in his kindness and mercy toward you, will allow you to be poured out a little. It doesn't feel really good. It's not something we would choose. What do you mean I might get fired from my job? Sometimes that might just be the Lord simply pouring you out to take that crumb, that crud, and get rid of it. And then there you are again, and you're like, ah. But the leaves start forming again. Before long, you're poured out again. And God is doing that, not because he's mad at you, not because he hates you, but because he loves you. And he wants best for you. And he wants to sanctify you and me to become more like his son. That's why we're here, among other reasons, uh, on the earth. That he doesn't just take us away when we become Christians. There's a sanctifying process to prepare us for our home, which is in heaven. And God loves us too much to allow us to get comfortable and settled this side of eternity. And that's not only for our good, but it's for the lost and dying world around us that is observing us and taking note of us. Friends, there's work for us to be doing. There are people for us to be reaching before the great day of the Lord. And I'll conclude with this, verse 14. It says, now the great day of the Lord is near. It's near and it's hastening fast. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty man cries aloud there. It's a day of wrath is that day, a day of distress and a day of anguish, a day of ruin and a day of devastation. It's a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet blast, a battle cry against the fortified cities and against the lofty battlements. I will bring distress on mankind so that they shall walk like the blind because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood shall be poured out like dust and their flesh like dung. Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them on the day of the wrath of the Lord. In the fire of his jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed for a full end, uh, excuse me, a full and sudden end he will make of all the inhabitants of the earth. He, he makes it clear, he's done this, I should say, that God's judgment being poured out is justified. He says that the day is near 
and the day is hastening. He uses all of these phrases to describe just how significant it will be, a day of distress and anguish, ruin and devastation, darkness, gloom, clouds and thick darkness, and so on. And here is where it seems that Zephaniah has crossed from focusing on the near judgment to the far judgment that is still yet future to you and I. And so then these are words that apply to you and I to bring to those that we come into uh, contact with. He's moved on from the coming judgment of the Babylonians to the judgment that the Lord will bring in the last days. And sometime maybe this week you might want to spend some time reading Revelation chapter 6 through Revelation chapter 19 because it gives in great detail and a bit in more poetic language than Zephaniah did but it gives a clear description of that day of the Lord in the last days. He says, I will bring distress upon mankind. He says that he will judge a rebellious Judah, and if they don't repent, that there'll be no holding back from the completion of his judgment. Notice he says in verse 18, neither their silver or their gold will be able to deliver them. That the riches for which they had labored and compromised to obtain will be useless in that day to save them. We're so prone, aren't we, to trust in our silver and our gold, but it won't do anything to prevent them from God's judgment. And so how should we respond to these things? We should respond to these things the same way that God told Zephaniah to respond to these things. Look at chapter 2, just verse 1. It says, Gather together, yes, gather, O shameless nation. Bring yourselves together together. He says, before the decree takes effect, before the day passes away like chaff, before there comes upon you the burning anger of the Lord, before there comes upon you the day of the anger of the Lord. He says in verse 3, seek the Lord, all you humble of the land. Those who do his just commands, seek righteousness, seek humility, and perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the Lord's anger. I believe that's God's word for us this morning. All of us that, he says, who do his just, com just commands, hopefully that applies to each of us, he says, humble yourself, seek the Lord, and perhaps we will be able to escape. And so I encourage you, let's seek the Lord on behalf of those who don't seek the Lord. Let's humbly cry out, to God for mercy for those who don't cry out to God for mercy. Because there was a day in your life where you were uninterested in the things of God. And maybe you were in open rebellion to the things of God. But God got a hold of your heart and he changed you. And he changed you from the inside out. There are thousands of people that live around us that come into contact with us on a daily basis that are presently where you once were. Would you join me in crying out to God that he would bring an awakening to our community, that he would open up people's hearts and minds and understanding, that they might be able to see, they might be able to hear what it is that God is desperately trying to say to them before that day passes like chaff and the pouring out of his wrath. wrath. Amen? Let's pray together. And Father, for anyone to come to God in any way, humility is required. 
Lord, we have to come as a people that are broken. We have to come as a people that have a need. We have to come as a people that recognize that only God can meet our need. And so, Lord, we pray for a greater humility in each one of our hearts, Lord. We look around our world that is around us. We see things that are spiraling. It seems faster and faster. And, Lord, we know that the only solution is an inward change in the hearts of man. And so, Father, we're praying that you would begin that work in us. And, Lord, I do pray, if there's anyone here that's been playing around with sin, Lord, that you would bring a heavy conviction on them, not because of me, not because of my words, but by your Holy Spirit, you would bring a heavy conviction to choose one or the other. You're either hot or cold. No more of this lukewarmness. Father, if there's any of us that are here that just finds ourselves indifferent to the things of eternity, Lord, would you change us? And Lord, for our community and for our state and states and for our nation and for this world, Lord, you're the only answer. And Lord, we pray that you would intervene Bring people to the place of faith. Bring them to the foot of the cross. Break their heart with the work that Jesus has done for them. Save souls, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Purify my heart. Let me be as and precious silver purify my heart let me be as
Every week after service, we offer the opportunity uh, to be prayed for. Um, today we have uh, Brad and Tracy over here. They're more than willing to pray for you. Maybe about something you considered today during the service or just something that's been on your heart. You brought it with you here, and you would like others to just support you in prayer. These guys are up here. We'll have leaders up front as well.